Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. I'm currently speaking with Joan Blades. Joan and I connected earlier this summer when the idea for Sanity was starting to develop. She's one of the most interesting voices in the space of working across the aisle and making interesting, bipartisan, and unexpected relationships happen. You may have come across her TED Talk, Free Yourself from Your Filter Bubble, which had about 1.2 million views. Joan is the co-founder of MomsRising.org, of the progressive website and community MoveOn.org, and of what we're going to talk about in this conversation today, Living Room Conversations, an organization that's facilitating and helping Americans with different beliefs. Joan, it is such a pleasure to have you on Sanity. Thank you so much for having me. To kick off our conversation, I would love if you could share a little bit about the idea for Living Room Conversations, how the organization came to be, and what your hope is for its future. I live in Berkeley, California. Back in 2004, I was very, very interested in understanding why people on the right feel so differently about climate change than I did. And I took the opportunity to work with a group called Reuniting America to get people together across partisan lines and had very good experience talking to people that had very different views than I did and had very productive conversations about people's beliefs about climate change and many other things. As a result of those conversations, I came to the conclusion that it would be wonderful for many people to have that opportunity. As time went on, it became clear to me that it was becoming less possible to have good conversations about climate and other issues. By 2008, the kind of conversations I had in 2005 and 2006 were less likely. And that was the inspiration for working with some of the friends I'd made through Reuniting America on putting together a very simple, structured conversation so that anyone that wanted to could have a conversation across partisan lines. We did our pilot project in 2010, 2011, and they've just been slowly growing ever since that time and growing ever more rapidly now as more and more people start to think, wow, we are really become disconnected and we need to do something about it. One of the early living room conversations that you had was a conversation that you hosted with Mark Meckler, one of the co-founders of the Tea Party. I think some might be a little surprised to hear that. Sounds a little bit like an odd couple. But both of you came together and found some pretty phenomenal common ground. How did you connect with Mark? And why do you think there was such a positive public reaction to the two of you hosting a living room conversation together? I, I think you're right. It's the odd couple phenomena. Or as uh, one person said, it's the Romeo and Juliet story mm-hmm. when you have people from such different factions finding that they really like each other. And I should note that a living room conversation is a very simple structure. Two friends with different viewpoints. Each invite two friends. 
for a living room conversation. So there were six of us in that conversation, which makes it even more interesting than two people because you get a rounded picture. And Mark brought a couple of his friends and I had a couple of my friends and with very diverse viewpoints. The conversation was about crony capitalism. We discovered that we were actually in much more agreement than we realized about things like with banks, when they gamble with our money, we don't like it if we insure them when they lose and they get to keep it when they win. And criminal justice reform, we were in complete agreement, too many people in prison, war on drugs, not a success, got to start using evidence-based practices. And that actually put Mark and I in a position where we could speak in public venues about this agreement and control to a growing realization that there's some very substantial common ground to be working on in the area of criminal justice reform. And you asked how I met Mark. One of my friends said, hmm, co-founder of Move On, co-founder of Tea Party Patriots, you two should meet. <laughs> and he made the introduction. I love that. We've talked in the past about this. Some of my most celebrated and treasured friendships are with people who see the political world so differently, but yet we do find sometimes some really interesting common ground. Sometimes we have to agree to disagree, but if you're not willing to have a conversation at least, then you won't have the opportunity to find out where you might find common ground. We both have, uh, I think, feelings of trepidation with some of the tone and and rhetoric that's coming out of Washington right now. But when it comes to criminal justice Mm -hmm. reform, there are some interesting things that are happening in a a bipartisan manner on Capitol Hill and in the White House. I'm curious, and and I struggle with this myself, how do you grapple with finding common ground in certain areas, but then also having really strong disagreements or differences of views in, in other policy aspects and leadership aspects? Well, I guess what I've become comfortable with is that there are people that I can like a lot and even you know, love that I disagree with. There are times when I find that confusing because I really believe in these people's goodwill and intelligence, and yet we disagree very strongly about some things. And it's holding that tension that I think has become uncomfortable and some people are not, they're not allowing themselves to have those attachments right now in some cases. And I think that's a loss. We've always taken great pride in a, as a country in being able to have diverse religious groups in the country and live peacefully with each other. And we're not doing that in the area of politics now. And I think we need to remember that tradition and take it with us into the realm of politics. You almost a year ago had an op-ed in USA Today, and I loved the headline of it, the title of it. It was uh, come out of the political closet in 2018 and help heal our divide. Last week, I had a a wonderful conversation with the restaurant owner of the Red Hen, not the Red Hen in Virginia that asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders to leave the establishment, but a completely different one in Connecticut being in the national spotlight just because of the name of her restaurant. She refused to get political and she focused on why she created a restaurant, which was to bring people together and focus on food and hospitality. One of the things that she said in the conversation really has stuck with me, which was that there are quiet people and we should respect quiet people and that there are people who vote but don't want to be political. And we shouldn't pressure that mindset to speak up and speak out. And I really respect that. But I'm conflicted because if we stay quiet, then the loudest voices in the room are guaranteed to prevail. 
How do you navigate that tension in some of your work that you're doing with living room conversations? That is a great question and a great quote from her, because there are a lot of people that have stepped away from politics because it has become ugly. And that's unfortunate. And we need those people in the room to some extent so that it isn't the fight that wins. Living room conversations are an invitation for people that are curious, that do want to heal relationships. And yeah, at this point, I'm describing it as domestic peace building. Because the sad thing is there are more and more people that are saying, I don't want to talk to those people. On each side, they're saying that. And that's troubling. That's bad for our democracy. And so the question is, how can we make it a good place for people to show up? One of the things that just made me very happy last week is we had a set of conversations both in person and by video on tolerance and what's next after the election and relationships before politics. We had three different conversations and people had whichever appealed to them the most. And this one gentleman sent a note back to us talking about how he lived you know, with this neighbor for 20 years and they had this conversation that allowed him to have more of a connection with this neighbor than he'd had in all those 20 years. Sometimes these conversations not only are good for the nation, but they're so good for us individually and for our relationships. That's one of the reasons I think they're moving into faith communities with such success. Faith communities are where we go to kind of be the people we want to be. And this is a good way to reflect and try and, you know, have the kind of relationships we want to have. You have a background in mediation. You have a law degree and you brought together kind of a really interesting group of experts when it comes to mediation and developing some of the different uh, topic areas or living room conversations. Could you talk a little bit about how you and your team develop these different conversation topics that people all across the country can host in their living rooms? The mediation background is kind of my personal interest really goes towards finding common ground and finding relationships. Now, the living room conversations are structured with just six people with the conversation agreements and conversation rounds so that people don't require a facilitator or mediator to do it. Everyone owns their part of the conversation and it works beautifully because they're intimate. People really know how to do this sort of thing very well. The conversation guides have just grown as there's been demand. You know, in the case of the relationships before politics, I used to tell people, well, you know, living room conversations are wonderful, but I don't actually recommend them for families because families are the ones that will break the rules because they have all this history, right? But then we kept on having people coming to us and saying, you know, I had the best conversation I've had with my father in years or my nephew or my niece And I I learned something from the living room conversations about how to have that conversation. And we finally realized people using the conversation, this is one of the conversations they wanted to have. So we wrote it. Debbie Lynn, one of my co-founders, often does the first draft of things. And then it goes through a review process with the partners because we have a great deal of political diversity with the partners. We want to make sure that the conversation is as welcoming to the broadest possible 
small group of people. It's funny, I wrote a conversation, nuclear weapons was one of the conversations I wanted to talk about because, you know, that's something we really need to pay attention to. And my conservative partner kind of did all the redlining for me. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Because I wanted to talk about the topic, not... I learned just in the ways he said, well, that language won't quite work there. And really, it's like this. And so it makes for a much better conversation guide when you have this diverse group review. You know, it's only a paragraph and, you know, four to six questions that we're reviewing. But sometimes it takes a week because we go back and forth. We want it to be as good as it possibly can be. Joan, one thing that you are known for comes up in the TED Talk. It comes up with people who know you. You're known for hosting walks in Berkeley. <laughs> now, you and I have not met in person yet. And my hope is to one day have a, have a walk with you in, in Berkeley, California. But why do you have this reputation? And what have you learned from hosting these walking meetings? I have this amazing ridge that's seven minutes from my house if I drive. And what better place to have a conversation than in nature? There's actually some science that suggests that when we are walking together in the same direction, it is optimal for thinking and for even for thinking collaboratively. I personally much prefer being out on a walk than sitting at my computer. I think it's a great way to mix up my day. If you've been traveling and all of a sudden you're in Berkeley, would you rather sit inside at some coffee shop or be on a ridge with amazing views of the Golden Gate Bridge and Mount Diablo and Mount Tamalpais? If you can make that hike, (laughs) you should go for it. I love that. You have been a a strong local progressive voice, but before that, and before Living Room Conversations, you became known for a flying toaster game. And I would love to hear a little bit about your your early days in the online space. Well, it actually wasn't online. It was consumer software, which basically doesn't exist anymore. And my husband is the person that is technologically adept. I am the person that if I can read the manual and understand it, anyone can do it. So at Berkeley Systems, I probably did everything but write code. <laughs> None of the tech, technical stuff, but all the rest of it needs to happen too. But the flying toaster was the iconic, it was a screensaver. And these little flying toasters flapping across the screen. And there was all sorts of wonderful artwork that went into the screensaver. And The game is You Don't Know Jack. So that was our other hit product. So there you have it. Software, which no longer is. (laughs) You know, Egghead is a thing that most people don't know what it was anymore. It's just amazing how, how much the world has changed. How do you think that that experience informed the development of MoveOn.org, or did it? Um, There were certainly aspects that informed the development of MoveOn. We used to have screensaver contests, for example, where people submitted their the screensaver ideas, and that was great fun. And Move On has always believed in, you know, kind of the wisdom of crowds and the talent of crowds to let the members contribute with 
living room conversations, it really is trusting people to come forward and say, this is important, I'm going to do it. What's harder about living room conversations is a conversation actually takes an hour or more. People have a sense that they don't have time so often. And yet we also see that loneliness and depression is something that's on the rise in our culture. So we've got this kind of perverse quality where we're more connected than we've ever been before. But the quality of our connection for many people are not having their really deeper needs of human connection being met. In fact, we have a digital dialogue conversation that is great to talk about how technology has changed our relationships and to allow us to be thoughtful and intentional about that. And that's a really good conversation that could go along with a documentary called Screenagers. So, you know, another example of a conversation that's in response to a need that we've just discovered. It's a great conversation. There's such a need. And right now, I think we are starting to have more conversations about loneliness in America. It's a massive rise. And David Brooks wrote an op-ed in the late spring that just made my eyes pop out of my head. I think he said that in the 80s, 20% of the country said that they experienced significant loneliness. And now it's 40% of the country the online communities that you've built, I mean, moveon.org is a, is a progressive online community, very progressive online community, but it is a community and living room conversations is very much a community as well. I think you've created spaces that have deeper connections than some of the more kind of superficial, one-dimensional, passive relationships that we have online. It comes across as very intentional. Well, I'm glad. That's good. Yeah, I think the work should be in service to the people that use it. And so really good listening is core to having something like living room conversations, to figuring out what it is that's really going to serve the people that want to use it. We're constantly learning from the people that are using our conversations. And that's why we describe it as an open source project. Conversations are out there. And if they get back to us, you know, and say, you know, this could be better by doing this or that. We can do it, and we're grateful for the feedback. What would you say is the most unexpected thing that you've learned starting Living Room Conversations? I think it's been that we've gotten to the point where people no longer are comfortable inviting their friend, their neighbor, their colleague to co-host a conversation. In the last two or three years, things have gotten so heated and people have seen relationships harmed by political differences. And so now we are you know, working on a project called Mismatches, which is like a political dating service to help people find their someone with a different political background that, so they don't feel like they're risking a relationship. And I find that very sad, mm. but that is where we are now. So you've really seen a noticeable difference from 2011, 2012 to today in terms of that being a concern that people have. I, yeah, and that may be me projecting, but I don't think so. Um, yeah, that's really depressing. What do you think the solution or the start to the solution is? Well, it's, it's actually people like you that say, this is important. We have to shift this because John Gable, my conservative partner who I did the TED talk with, 
you know, there is research that suggests that if we can get 3.5% of the population to have a shift in orientation, that can change our culture. So it doesn't take everyone showing up, but the people that are going, I don't like the way this is and I want to make it better. If they can start doing conversations or, you know, you're doing this wonderful new podcast because you want to change the culture. And collectively, there's a lot of people that are going, this is not good. So working together, I think we can do it. And I actually think this coming year, 2019 is the year to do it because 2020, all eyes were going to, are going to be on the election again. Focusing on the peace building. I used to talk about this as collaborative problem solving. I'm now talking about it as peace building. It's what we need to be doing. People of goodwill are showing up and it's really kind of wonderful. If listeners would like to host a living room conversation or if they'd like to learn more about mismatch, where should they go and what should they do? Well, they should go to livingroomconversations.org and there's a place where you can just become join and once a week we'll send you a note about the best things going on. On the right-hand side of the website, you'll see the conversations that you can just sign up for. I would love to have a living room conversation with you someday. We can do it on any topic you like. I would love to do that too. We've talked about it in the past and I, I think it would be great and perhaps we could even have some listeners if they'd like to join as well. That would be fun. I would love to have more stories about people that went, you know, this old friend from school that I haven't talked to for, you know, a couple of years. Now that we can do video living room conversations, I'm thinking that that's a way for people to have the friend conversations and have it feel a lot more doable because it won't feel as risky as with a neighbor or a colleague. I know one person that did that with her high school friends, you know, 10 years later, and it was a wonderful conversation. It was a reunion and it it had long-term impact in that the people went away from the conversation and had restored relationships and friendships that maybe they didn't even have before. Hmm. It seems like an interesting area to explore. I was recently having a conversation with someone at a fast casual restaurant, a couple that struck up a conversation with me and the wife is a nurse and social worker. She was telling me about a hot button issue that a colleague of hers brought up and she, she felt very differently. She ended up saying something and she told me that this colleague stopped speaking with her, which is really dangerous when you're a nurse and a social worker. And she said, you know, I've never Mm -hmm. experienced anything like this before. And so maybe having these conversations with people we have relationships with, but we don't see on a daily is a better starting point. It depends on the topic too. Now, if you're going to have the guns and responsibility conversation, that's a very hot political topic and you might not want to go there. Whereas the forgiveness conversation... It's just this wonderful, deep exploration that deepens your, you know, kind of understanding of whoever you're having it with and your own understanding of your relationship with forgiveness or the American dream. So you can go for the, the reflective or the aspirational or you can go for the tough topics. Maybe you start with one of the aspirational conversations and you do monthly conversations like uh, some cohorts and some faith communities. Hmm. Before we close, a question that I've asked just about every guest we've had on Sanity is, what inspires you most right here, right now, today? 
I think what inspires me most right now is seeing this moving into faith communities and having them do monthly conversations and figuring out where they want to go with. That's pretty exciting because as we look for ways for this to be spread all through the country, there's a place where you've already got groups of people gathered. And as they have conversations with each other, and then those conversations spread out into their communities, and then they they start doing the across the country conversations as well. You see that really making a profound difference. Well, Joan, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to being out in California one of these days and going on a on a walk. That's a plan. It sounds good to me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.